Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Kara Homequest. Kara is the Director of Advocacy for the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Much of Kara's work at the MSPCA includes lobbying for stronger animal protection laws in the state legislature. She has also worked on several successful ballot question initiatives. She is on the steering committee of the Mass Voters for Animals Political Action Committee, which seeks to elect humane-minded legislators. And she's on the advisory committee of the Massachusetts Animal Coalition and is a founder of the Massachusetts Bar Association's Animal Law Practice Group. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stacey, and congratulations on your new podcast. Thank you. So, Kara, you and I, we go way back, but I just was wondering if you could share with us how you got started. So I have been at the MSPCA for a long time. It's um, about 20 years. I sort of fell into my job, and I use this example when I'm talking to people who want to get involved in animal protection and are sort of looking for that, how, how to do that. And I was working at another job at the time that didn't have anything to do with animals, and I knew I wanted to work in animal protection, and I was the person sort of seeking how to, how to do that. And I started to volunteer at the MSPCA for a couple mornings a week. I actually had been at my previous job long enough that I had a little flexibility and went up to the MSPCA a couple days during the week. And then when a job opened, I was uh, there and people knew me and I guess liked me and thought I would be a good fit. And so I, I kind of fell into it that way. And I use that as an example of encouraging people to volunteer if they really do want to end up in a job in animal protection and getting to know the people in an organization and, and learn more about that organization. So that's that's how I started and I've been there since. So when you were volunteering, you're a lawyer, right? Well, I am. And so about four or five years after I started at the MSPCA, I had always been inter- interested in the law and my undergraduate degree was in legal studies. And um, I had a colleague who then worked for the Humane Society of the United States and we were working on this initiative petition on trapping wildlife. And he had gone to Suffolk University Law School. And I just thought I just really liked public policy and solving problems and the law and thought that through that degree, I could do more for animals. And a lot of the legislators at the state house uh, are attorneys, and the degree has helped him with bill drafting and analyzing statutes and opinions that impact animals. So it's one way that people can use their law degrees, and I think it's been very helpful for me, although I wouldn't call it you know, a re- prerequisite of, of having the job that I do. So if someone was interested in working in advocacy, it would be nice if they pursued a law degree, but not necessarily a specific requirement. Right. I think it definitely comes in and helpful, but somebody could do what I do uh, w- without it. But it, I think it also makes it more interesting to me and, and 
the introduction mentioned the animal law practice group at the Massachusetts Bar Association. So it's really allowed me to have a, a, a way to think more about these issues. I feel like what I do day to day is a lot of just doing, but using the law degree and some of the groups I'm involved with has really, it just sort of helped me think about things more and explore different ideas and ways to do things that I've really found very interesting. And especially since I have been at my job for a while that it's, it's I think it's really important to keep trying to have new challenges and to look at different ways to solve some of the same problems that we've had. So I think the degree has been helpful that way. And I also think people might hear this a lot about law school, but it does teach you how to think. And I think that analytical reasoning has been very helpful when we are lobbying or figuring out how to talk about issues to legislators and and things like that. So I think it's definitely been a good foundation for a lot of the work that I continue to do. When you uh, first started, I'm just wondering if there was anybody you uh, turned to as a mentor or sort of someone that you looked up to. Sure. When I started uh, at the MSPCA, there are two people that influenced me um, looking back now. My boss at the time was Martha Armstrong, um, who's still involved in animal protection. She left the MSPCA a few years after I started and went on to run the companion animal department at the Humane Society of the United States for many years. Um, And she's uh, worked at other humane societies and done some consulting. And she was certainly the first professional that I ever got to work with and was a really great influence uh, on me. And sometimes when she posts on my Facebook (laughs) post that she's proud and excited to see the stuff that we're doing, I feel very happy that we're continuing stuff that she started and that we're still continuing to do the things that um, and work in a manner that I I learned from her. And then Aaron Medlock was the person I mentioned earlier from he was at the Humane Society of the United States at the time. And he was running that ballot question on restricting certain types of body gripping traps for wildlife. And he had gone to law school. And he was a person that I felt helped me make that decision, which was a big decision. I had been out of undergraduate for a few years and, um, and you know, law school is a big commitment, but he he was influential in sort of me thinking about how, how that degree could be used to help animals. When we first got to know each other, we were both on the board of directors for the Massachusetts Animal Coalition. And at that point in time, you were really leading the charge in creating the spay neuter license plate. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you made that happen. Well, that was definitely uh, uh, not just me. It was a, it was a coalition of a, a lot of people, as is any legislative effort. It's really a challenge to get bills passed um, in Massachusetts and in other states too. So it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of people. And in Massachusetts, in particular, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes things are floating around for several years before they get that momentum that's needed. So I, I really enjoy working in coalitions and. I feel like this is going back over 10 years, but I kind of came to the idea, I think, a bit later that some other groups and individuals had come up with this idea. I think at the time, Massachusetts may have only had the whale plate, but I really liked the idea and and still do of, of some of these solutions for helping people spay and neuter and vaccinate their animals, you know, just come down to money and access and sort of removing the barriers to help people do things and just have learned a lot we're punishing people for not doing that. That's not really working. And that the solutions that help people do what they want to do and do the right thing are really important. And so one of those things is just providing the resources to help folks help folks do that. And the license plate was, was an initiative that 
would do that. And I think today it's brought in over probably close to one and a half million dollars. It's been in place for about 12 years. So that's that's not insignificant. And it's helped prevent a lot of unwanted births of, of from Massachusetts uh, cats and dogs. On the specifics of the license plate, I mean, we you get charged X dollars for the license plate. How much of that goes to the fund? So when people want to purchase a license plate, and they're very attractive plates, they have a dog and a cat on them, and they say, I'm animal friendly on the bottom. And once you get one, it's really fun because you see them a lot and you wave to the people who have who have the plates and you know they're on, you know, hey, you like animals too. And, and people can get them at any time. You don't have to wait for um, a, ca- a car's registration to expire. So it can be done anytime through the Registry of Motor Vehicles and be- can be done online. The first time you purchase it, the registry does retain, I think it's still $12 and that covers the actual tin plate. So they retain that. But after that, $40 goes to directly to the Massachusetts Animal Coalition to be used just for purposes of spaying, neutering dogs, cats, and rabbits. Um, And then it's renewed every two years. So every two years, that $40 goes um, to the Massachusetts Animal Coalition. It's funny you mentioned that about like waving to the people with the spay neuter license plates. It it was really game changing for me because in the early days, I pretty much could recognize a lot of people. And then all of a sudden I'd be out on the highway and stuff and there'd be people with the plates and I'm like, I don't know them. Exactly. I, at the first, well, there was a, the first 50, 1500 plates, we, we took all the registrations. And so a lot of those people we did know. But yes, I agree. Now there's people, which is great. It's happy. <laughs> I don't know them anymore. It's very strange. So I'm glad to know someone else does that too, because I thought I was being a little weird. No, I always look into a car and see like, ooh, maybe I know that person. And then uh, more recently, you've been involved with the Mass Animal Fund and the the checkoff on the tax returns. So I was wondering if you might touch on that plan too. Sure. That was another exciting adventure that uh, took several years to come into fruition. But we looked at other states. I think when proposing legislation, it's always helpful to look at what other states are doing, what they've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what they might do differently. And so we looked at ways that states are funding spay, neuter services in their states and in their communities. And so License plate is a very popular one. And the other one is um, a a voluntary donation on state tax forms, which we now have in Massachusetts. It gets tricky for some of the other options because they're not always voluntary. So surcharges on dog licenses, vaccines, pet food, uh, they're always opposed by somebody. So the voluntary donations have been easier to to pass. Um, There's really nobody opposed to them. It's just the work to get to get it through the legislature and to get enough support and to get it sort of on the top of legislators' piles of, of bills that they have to look at. Um, so in 2012, a law passed that did a lot of things in Massachusetts. It banned breed-specific legislation. It allowed pets to be included in domestic violence restraining orders, did a lot of updating of our statutes. And one of the things it did was create this fund, so now known as the Mass Animal Fund, and has that program funded through this voluntary donation on state income tax forms. And that money goes to spaying, neutering, and vaccinating homeless animals or animals that live with people who can, could not otherwise afford those services and also to training animal control officers. And so both the license plate and the 
the tax donation option are great. The, the, the downside is that they're unpredictable. So you're really um, relying on people's generosity. There's it's no, no real predictable revenue stream. I think now after the license plates have been in existence for a while and we're seeing this with the Mass Animal Fund, we can kind of see what to expect. But there's certainly still more de- demand um, for services than I think either of those programs can meet. There's always more applications for the license plate money, um, then there is money to give away. And the same thing with the Mass Animal Fund, they've had to suspend the voucher program until the next chunk of money comes in from uh, the Department uh, of Revenue. Uh, The tricky thing with both those programs, too, is that we're not dealing directly with the people who are donating or buying the license plate. They're sort of in the license plate situation, there's the registry and then in the tax donation, there's the Department of Revenue. So we don't exactly know who is donating. So we can't really market and target them to give more or, or things like that. So they're tricky programs. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're always talking about other ideas too to try to increase the revenue to, to them. So if someone was interested in getting the license plate, the website is petplate.org. Is that correct? It is. Um, or they can just Google Massachusetts RMV. I think it's rmv.gov. And there is a, a page on um, special license plates. And then in terms of funding community cats through both of these programs, the license plate program funds nonprofits that can assist community cats and the Mass Animal Fund issues vouchers through animal control that helps community cats too. Exactly, exactly. There are different ways to get the money where it's needed. I see the sort of upside and downsides of both. The, the license plate money can also go just not to nonprofits, but municipal animal control departments who are, are using it to bay and neuter animals. Um, so that I think gives a little bit more flexibility for different types of programs. Um, and then the Mass Animal Fund does operate on a voucher program. So they do need to be processed, but there's also sort of a little bit more of a more record keeping or sort of, you know, each animal that's coming through really, or have some paperwork on, e- on each animal. So they, they run a bit differently, but I think they're both meeting their goals of really getting people who need these services, the, the ability to get their animals spayed and neutered and vaccinated. The vaccinations are only with the Mass Animal Fund though, the, the spay neuter license plates just does spaying and neutering. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide and seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash reveal wild. So you mentioned to me that there were a couple of sort of case studies that you would be willing to share with us about how you've worked with community cats and involving elected officials and or what your recommendations would be with groups working with community cat situation and using elected officials to help facilitate a TNR project. Right. So a lot of what I do, because I work at the state house a lot, I'm up there writing bills, researching bills, lobbying bills, and see 
over and over again how helpful it is when people, individuals have relationships with their legislators, whether they're at the state level, their local board of selectmen, um, their city councilors. I think sometimes we tend to rely on groups like the MSPCA or other animal protection groups to to advocate and lobby. And we certainly do that. And we do that to the best of our ability. But there are legislators, you know, they want to hear from their constituents and they sort of know when I'm walking around the building what my position is and the MSPCA position is, but they want to know what their constituents think. And, and so one of the themes throughout a lot of the work I do and when I talk to people is just really the importance of knowing who your elected officials are. And I think this is important, not just for animal issues, but most of us have many dimensions to our lives and there may be other things in our community that we want to speak to them about. In my, my town that I live in now, there was a question about building a new pool and I was very interested in that and I got to know a lot of the selectmen and town meeting members um, um, through that. But I think that is one very helpful way, especially I feel with the community cat issues. Sometimes that, you know, you might not need a lot law or a bylaw or even want one, but you want to be prepared that if, if there are complaints or something um, starts to go amiss in a community that you have that access to those elected officials. And one of the ways is just having a, a pre-existing relationship. And it's not something I think that can take a lot of time. A lot of them have office hours, um, especially locally in our cities and towns. They're, they're folks that you see in the coffee shop and in the supermarket. Um, their meetings are all public. But in the, my, my, my city or town, before every Slackman meeting, they have like a 15-minute meet and greet thing. And I just think it's a very nice way so that if something does come up in your in the community somebody already knows you and you already have you know a, a, a voice and are not completely reactive um, just this week I heard of two cities um, that were considering things having to do with community cats in Cambridge on Monday night I think people just found out about it maybe that day or a few days before um, one of the city councilors is running for state Senate and during his door knocking apparently had some complaints about community cats from um, some of the people in one part of Cambridge. And so his, I guess, only way to kind of respond to that was to write a city council. It's not an ordinance, but it was a sort of a resolution um, to examine this this problem or perceived problem. And so advocates, uh, Charles River Alley Cats folks, uh, spoke at the, the hearing that was that night. And we're sending a letter um, from the MSPCA, the Humane Society did. Uh, but that kind of thing, it was really helpful if you have some relationship or know who those elected officials are when those things come up and be able to talk to them and be like, hey, what's really going on and offer to be a part of a solution. Because a lot of times legislators introduce things in response to a constituent or something in the newspaper and, and they may not know the whole story and what's going on. And it really seemed that was the case in Cambridge. There's a lot of TNR going on. There's groups that were, were working there. Um, and it could have been just one person that says where something could have turned into something bigger. And I also read a newspaper article and um, I think Holyoke got some complaints about cat feeding station and was looking about looking to what to do with that. So, you know, we get these situations and animal folks and cat folks uh, rally, but it's always helpful if you have somebody in that city or town who who knows some of the people and decision makers um, to have a little bit of a, a leg up and they know who to call even before something escalates. So I always hope that people will look up their legislators and and um, I know I'll give my contact information at the end, but I'm always happy to help people figure out how to do that. 
Yeah. So on the flip side, actually, I worked with a group in Fitchburg and it's not necessarily the city councilors or the legislators, but well, the mayor, the mayor got involved and the board of health actually invited us in to help address their community cap problem. And uh, our meetings, we met regularly and we had a few meetings where the mayor actually attended so that then she could learn about the issue and learn about what the group was doing so that then if she did get any questions, she'd be able to respond accurately to constituents. When I talk to people, I think we still think of elected officials as, you know, just not normal people, but they, they are. And the more information they know about what we're doing is helpful. Every time a new state legislator gets elected, we go in and put a packet together about the MSPCA's program and say, like, hey, if you get calls from your constituents about wildlife issues or any type of animal problem, you know, we're here to help and try to try to help them before we need their help. <laughs> it doesn't always work, but that's that's the goal. And I think it creates a good dynamic. Would you like to share with us a little bit today about the lobby day for animals that you run? Sure. Every year, the MSPCA and other organizations across the state put on a day at the state house. It's usually in the spring. It's a really great way to be introduced to the legislative process. We get between 100 and 200 animal advocates, some of them very new to the legislative process and, and advocacy and people that return year after year. It's a nice way to learn about how to advocate and lobby for animal issues um, in a setting that is easy because the meetings are group meetings. We try to give people all the information to make them feel comfortable. We give a lot of information about who their legislators are in advance, what the bills we'll be talking about are in advance. So it's a really nice intro to how people can speak uh, out for animals and influence public policy to help animals. We won't have another one until 2017, but www.mspca.org would always have that information. But on that advocacy page that you have on the website, you tend to list the bills and what your position is. Yes, we have, a, I think it's mspca.org slash advocacy. And we have a comprehensive list of state legislation that impacts all types of animals, whether it's discrimination based on dog breed and, and homeowners insurance, uh, wildlife trapping, um, animal control type issues. Oh, we've been working on a bill relating to ivory, some sort of, sort of even national issues, protecting elephants and the ivory trade. And last week, or this week, actually, earlier this week, a few bills passed, one relating to animals in hot cars, one relating to animals that are left behind in abandoned properties. So if a tenant moves out or somebody is foreclosed upon while animal abandonment is a felony in Massachusetts, um, that doesn't do anything for the animal who's left behind. So this proposed law would require landlords and foreclosing banks to check vacant properties within three days for the presence of abandoned animals and also helps clarify you know what to do in those situations so that would be helpful for really any any species that might be left behind I think it's just unfathomable that people would do that but it happens and we have the stories that that show it and uh, this is that would be one way to prevent animals from basically suffering and dying and starving to death or dying of dehydration when they're just left without any means to fend for themselves and we have another bill that it's called NAC to protect puppies and kittens. It would make pet stores, they, they could not sell puppies and kittens that come from breeders that have uh, significant or 
multiple violations of the Federal Animal Welfare Act. So it would hopefully, hopefully make people not have as many problems as they do with purchasing sick pets. That issue is really, it's an animal protection issue, but it's also a consumer issue. And a lot of the animals that I work on have, have a people element. It's just, it's not always about animals. A lot of the things um, have a link towards, towards humans too, which is pretty interesting, such as the link between animal abuse and domestic violence and, and being able to now include animals and domestic violence restraining orders. You know, there's, there's multiple dimensions to a lot of the work uh, that we do for animals, which, which makes that interesting too. Kara, if uh, people were interested in reaching out to you, how would they find you? So I'll give you my email address. That's probably the best way. So it's my first initial K and then my last name. So it's K-H-O-L-M-Q-U-I-S-T at M-S-P-C-A dot org. Uh, my office line is 617-541-5008. Those are probably the best two ways. I am on Twitter at Kara Holmquist. And the MSPCA has a Animal Action Team Facebook page. That's where we post the public policy type information. And that is facebook.com slash MSPCA Animal Action Team, which is a nice way if somebody's interested in learning a little bit more about, about the scope of what we do. Kara, is there anything else you'd want to share with our listeners today? I think we've covered a lot, but I just think a lot of us started helping animals by helping, you know, hands-on work and um, caring for individual animals. You know, I always look at the public policy aspect of just having the ability to help such significant numbers of animals. It's hard and it's messy and it's not pretty all the time, but when it works, we can really, you know, change policies that impact so many animals. So if folks are interested in at all in in that process, encourage them to to contact me and I'd be happy to try to help them get involved in a way that would be meaningful for them and the animals. Yeah. I mean, if you just put together the numbers of the cats helped between the license plate and the Mass Animal Fund, you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of cats that have been able to be spayed or neutered. So it may take a lot of work to get these bills passed, but once they do get passed, then it's there. It's there for years and years and years, and it's affecting thousands of cats. It's really tremendous. If we hadn't had those opportunities, you know, we certainly would have missed a large population of people that needed assistance with cats that, you know, wouldn't have had access to the programs. Yeah. Yep. It's great. I mean, as I've said in other shows, we can't be all things to everybody. You know, we need to find what's our place, what's our role and really specialize sort of in that niche. You know, you've really chosen advocacy to be that role that you're going to play. And, you know, obviously you're advocating for all kinds of animals, but I have to believe, Kara, that community cats do play a special place in your heart. I know your family has been supportive of our community cat clinics. And so uh, your family's given up a lot of Sundays. And so I, I know you're there for the community cats. So I kind of hope that they're kind of up there on the list. Yeah, absolutely. And my cat sitting next to me <laughs> would say so. And both of my cats, well, I lost, unfortunately, had to euthanize one a couple of weeks ago. But the cats that I've had in, in the last several years have all come from, you know, MSPCA foster failures. <laughs> so they, we have, you know, the ability to foster in our office um, now. So um, that doesn't work out that well. <laughs> and yeah, my family, my mom, as you know, has fostered um, hundreds of, of animals for the MSPCA and other organizations. And then my husband's a veterinarian. So I try to get him up 
at the spay neuter clinics as much as as much as you can. Thank you to your whole family for supporting the cause. And Kara, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And we could keep going on for another half hour. So I hope at some point in time, you'd be willing to be back on the show again. Of course. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone.